The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. It's a great pleasure to have you with us for another episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Also wonderful to welcome my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We have a great discussion ahead. Phil, why don't you kick it off, please? Great. Thanks, John. I thought this week I'd talk about what to do when something blows up in your face, which is obviously a common occurrence for pretty much everybody in the world these days, unless your portfolio has been 100% oil and gas for the last six months, chances are you've got at least something that's down quite a bit over that period of time. And I also thought about it because I've been getting sort of an, I certainly haven't been asking for it, but I've been getting a, a storm of emails and tweets and stuff sent at me with people talking about why they own X, either because it's down you know, 70 or 80% or despite the fact that it's down 70 or 80%. And it's just an amazing exercise in anchoring on a totally irrelevant number or price or level that I think could be really counterproductive to pretty much everybody. So, I mean, the, the one thing too, that I went back and reread a paper that that might be somewhat helpful, which is uh, Michael Mobison's 2015 paper called Managing the Man Overboard Moment, Making a, a Informed Decision After a Large Price Drop. So he, in this paper, uh, he wrote, about what happens when a stock has a one-day decline of 10% or more. So he found uh, 5,400 cases of a publicly traded U.S. exchange-listed stock that had declined at least 10% in one trading day uh, in the 25 years ended in 2014. And as you would expect, there was a huge clustering. Uh, I'd have to go back and look exactly, but the majority of those one-day 10% declines were clustered around the dot-com bust of 2000-2001 in that period. And then several years later in the dot, in the uh, global financial crisis of 2007-2008. Um, so it, it was kind of interesting in that regard to see this plot of all of these massive pukes that, you know, they really were quite rare in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and then it's this huge spike around 2000, 2001, and another huge spike in 2007 and 2008, and then another period of relative calm after that, which I think is consistent with all of market history, right? I mean, it's a little bit like the old saying about flying an airplane, which it's many hours, days, weeks, months, years of boredom punctuated by a few moments of terror. And uh, the same is true of, of a lot of individual investment decisions. But what, what he described in this paper, what he sought to do was kind of help people take the emotion and the terror out of those few moments of, of really peak acute pain. So his, his 
key tenets were to keep your emotions in check because emotions obviously matter in just about everything. But particularly when you as the portfolio manager are looking at this massive hit to the returns in the in the profile, the, the marketability of the fund, the bonus pool, all of these enormous financial incentives that every portfolio manager is going to have, that can just send your emotions into overdrive. If you're the analyst who's recommended this position up the food chain, uh, you're feeling embarrassment, shame, worry about getting fired, whatever the case may be. The key point, of course, is that the, the most natural human reaction is probably just simple denial. Right, it, it's too painful to bear the reality of this was a horrible mistake. Uh, something's down so much that I can't even believe it, and you're just clinging to reality that doesn't exist anymore. And that's probably the number one piece of advice I could give, which is that just because something is down a lot doesn't mean that that thing is aware of that fact. It has no relevant, no relevance, no bearing on reality. And if you're hanging on to try to save face, if your logic depends on just getting back to break even. Um, as an increasing number of Twitter f- threads that I follow and read, uh, you know, just torturing the logic, torturing the numbers to try to make it look more favorable now. Because, you know, gosh, if I liked it at 300, I must really like it at 45. I mean, that has nothing to do with anything. I can guarantee you that a lot of things that went from wherever to 300 now down to 45 can still go to zero. And that's kind of the number. We'll, we'll come back to my own little personal checklist of factors that I would use today. Um, but the way Mobison lays this out is he he draws on the checklist manifesto at Tul Gawande's uh, well-known book, uh, where he he puts together an emergency le- a checklist that he attributes to a social psychologist to, quote, minimize the need for a lot of effortful analysis when time is limited and the workload is high. And so the idea is you're taking the emotion out and just saying, does X and Y and Z apply? And then he he looks at the base rate of all these outcomes. So the, the way he frames it up is he's got um, three factors uh, that are uh, momentum, uh, valuation, and quality. And he defines those in the paper. It's kind of what you'd expect. It's cash flow and, and price move and price movement in either direction uh, coming in. Valuation is a, is a cash flow derived metric, and then quality is, is return on investment derived. And the, the one great flaw in the paper, if there is one from my perspective, is that he's only looking at the excess returns, the abnormal returns over the ensuing 30 and 60 and 90 days uh, after the big surprise. And then he buckets those surprises into two categories. One is if it's an earnings announcement or related to an earnings announcement. So the, the price drop comes on the day of the earnings announcement or the following day. So that's the precipitating cause or everything else. So one of the case studies he cites is, you know, a company unexpectedly fires its CEO. And uh, surprisingly enough, I mean, do you guys have a guess as to which one um, is actually more highly correlated with bad abnormal returns over the ensuing 30 and 60, 90 days? There was actually quite a quite a distinction between the two. Well, I'm too familiar with the paper to oh, all right. fancy so you would guess. And I have some remarks knowing. about that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the, the punchline is that the earnings surprises were actually much more painful or much more indicative of a likelihood to lag over the ensuing 30 and 60 and 90 days, which I guess makes some sense because you know, at its core over the short run, the market is just discounting guesses about the future fundamentals of the company. And if a company comes out with a really nasty earnings surprise, that's probably more likely to lead to a at least three-month you know, lowering of expectations until you get the next data point. So 
that 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 made some sense once I stopped to think about it. But I was a little surprised because you know, look, if you come out intra quarter or whenever and announce that you fired the CEO or you're restating earnings or you know cutting guidance or whatever, um, I would have thought that would be even more jarring. But I guess the opposite is true. Um, so then, what what he did was he said, you know, he basically created a very robust analysis of all of the very char- various characteristics. So kind of a decision tree of, was this an earnings surprise? Yes or no. And then from there, ranking it based on momentum valuation and quality and giving you some sense of base rate of like, all right, this bomb has gone off, the stock's down 10 or 15% today, whatever it is. What is the base rate of that stock either de- continuing to cl- to decline to stay down from there or to recover some or all of its losses over the next couple of months and giving you some sort of sense then as to whether you should pull the ripcord and panic. I mean, we just saw that in a big way with Netflix a couple of months ago, right? Where a large well-known investor punted an entire giant position in one day after an earnings surprise um, and or whether you should maybe potentially stay the course. So my own personal take on this is I obviously love everything Mobison writes. I think he does an absolutely A-plus job in most of this. My own twist on it would be that you need to actually ingrain the principles of what you're doing into your own form of a checklist. And this may be the rare moment, like when an airplane has an emergency in mid-flight where you want an actual checklist to review so that you can take the emotions out of it. That I totally agree with. I probably wouldn't use the same uh, factor analysis that he did. And particularly in the current environment, the factors I would look at would be balance sheet strength. I continue to be amazed by the number of people that kid themselves and torture the logic to justify the fact that they continue to own a money losing business that has an increasingly indebted balance sheet, which just defies all logic and reason. I mean, if if the world has changed and you've had to take on increasingly high levels of debt just to survive, that is not a good thing. And the odds have very much changed from what you initially underwrote. On a related note, another huge factor that would be a checklist on on my list would be whether the growth that these companies are pursuing or the investments that these companies are pursuing are self-funded or not. Because if you have a reliance on a venture capital firm, a private equity firm, the debt capital markets, or even the equity capital markets to keep an infusion of new cash just to keep you alive, that would be a big issue for me. Third would be just the overall competitive landscape, because I think you've seen uh, enough evidence now that this is very much a changing of the guard. This is a big one, so to speak. This is a sea change. I think pretty much everyone, whether they're a practitioner or a capital provider, would agree with that. And so the capital markets may not be as friendly and the competitive market may not be as friendly. So if if you are competing in just a bloodbath of an industry, it's not likely to get better for you anytime soon. It may get better if you can survive the next year or two or three, but if that industry is just a you know shark tank right now, it's probably not going to get any easier in the immediate future. And the fourth one would be discount rate sensitivity, because I think massive amounts of valuations were predicated on truly absurd discount rates over the past couple of years. And that has also completely changed. And we can talk about what discount rates might make sense or might not make sense. But I know for a fact, if somebody was discounting stuff off of a 1% or 2% 10-year treasury, and that was kind of it, and they you know slapped a little premium on top of that and used it to torture all signs, all forms of cash flows that were you know, 5, 10, 15 years hence, that's probably not going to work. This is a pendulum swing in the other direction. And so I think you really have to be clear with yourself about what that means and and where things are headed. 
because wherever this thing traded in November, December, January is completely irrelevant. It has nothing to do with what's going to happen from here. It has nothing to do with what you should do. What you paid for it is completely irrelevant and has nothing to do with what you should do from here either. And yet almost everything I hear when I talk to people, when they're quote unquote pitching their ideas on Twitter or whatever, has some element of that anchoring bias in there. And I think it's it's really destructive. So I'll stop there and open up to you guys and see what you think about the topic and what might be on your list for, for things to look at right now. Yeah, I thought this was a really awesome piece. And it's funny, I couldn't believe this came out like seven years ago because I feel like I saw it so recently. And it's probably because I reviewed it when everything was going to hell during the COVID crash, just thinking about some of these, some of these things. You know, periodically, I tend to come back to some of these Mobison papers. Um, and I do keep the base rate book uh, open uh, in my browser at all times, just in case, I, just to keep myself honest um, and in case I need to look at it in a given day. But anyway, you know, I did, I love the decision tree. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think two interesting takeaways I had from it in particular were on earnings events where, you know, the only bad reactions were in uh, high momentum stocks, irrespective of valuation, quality, whatever, high momentum stocks. When the feedback loop breaks and you get an adverse reaction, like it creates uh, reflexivity in the other direction. And I think that's a very like Sorosian moment, uh, if that's a word. I guess I made it up, but um, you know that's one of those kind of situations where like feedback loops that are going in one direction when they break they go equal and opposite. And I think that's that's somewhat startling and and something important to internalize and think about. And then on the flip side of that is how you know when you talk about um, positive and negative feedback loops, negative feedback loops are not. Uh, positive feedback loops in the wrong direction. There are things that break momentum. And interestingly, like if you're weak into earnings, irrespective of valuation or anything else, these really bad moves tend to be the reversal. And so, you know, it's kind of amazing to me how much sentiment and uh, emotion um, kind of crystallize in these big move moments. Um, And I think that's very clear on both sides of the coin there. Um, and then on non-earnings events, it's my God, how frequently it's positive is is just eye-opening. Um, they're just basically like, you know, if non-earnings bad stuff happens, it's it's generally going to be good, okay from there. Um, so in some ways, that's nice validation of the market being an earnings-focused uh, vehicle and synthesizing these things the right way. I wonder, like, what sort of I, I don't I don't know. I wonder what I'm missing in thinking that through. Like, what sort of other events could be in there? Um, cause I would imagine, uh, I don't know, in some ways, some non-earnings out of left field problem, uh, could really snowball into something worse. Or if it's just that the moves tend to be so dramatic on that. I remember a company I was involved in getting cut out of Facebook's marketplace and it dropped, mm-hmm. uh, 50% on the day and damn, was that rough. Um, did a lot of work on it, got co- kind of comfortable added to it. It was, was an okay outcome in the end, but it was like, Minus 50% in a day. So it just over discounted everything possible that was bad. So of course the returns were good from there, but um, you know, the event itself was really freaking dramatic. Um, so I wonder if that's part of what's captured there in how positive the non-earnings events 
tend to be. Um, and Phil, I think you had a pretty thorough checklist there on criteria to consider alongside that. I, I think the one other is I'd definitely think about, you know, the context of the market, you know, is it a harsh market that's treating everything negatively or is it a market where like things tend to be good and, and that's one thing that stands out as a negative because I do think those sorts of, that, that's like a tell uh, whether you should be worried uh, beyond that day or not, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it, uh, just because everything's being treated poorly and your stock's treated poorly, doesn't mean that you shouldn't be worried, but if your stock's being treated poorly when everything else is, is being handled, uh, quite well by the market, um, there might be something different going on there. So that's, that's the one I'd add. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, it's it's tricky. Everything's situation dependent. Everything's market dependent. So yeah, it's kind of ironic that this paper came out. I don't know what what part of the year I'll have to go look. I want to say it was right around May of 2015. But then we did have that little kind of small cap and in, in domestic industrial sell off in late 2015 into early 2016, which provided some. Yeah, I'm sure there were some 10% days in there after this paper was released, but nothing like what we've seen in the last six months, right? I mean, I, I, I'd i be curious if we could add another, I bet there've been another several hundred, if not a thousand or more individual securities that have sold off more than 10% a day just since November and December, right? Into 2022. Totally. Like it's It's been pretty crazy. And so if you look at this market environment, that's why I picked the factors that I did. Like, obviously valuation matters and obviously business momentum matters. And to a certain extent, stock price momentum matters. That'd be lower on my list of things that I'd worry about. I'm never that good at, you know, pegging either side of that. But yeah, look, I mean, I just think there was so much money sloshing around in so many crazy things and the valuations in certain things, not everything, but but certain things got so out of whack that that's what you have to consider. So I, I never really understood when some of the more hedge fund trader types would say that it really cleared their mind by being able to just sell everything and start with a fresh sheet of paper. But that kind of is intellectually liberating, right? Because so many people, certainly me included to an extent, are just hung up on where the stock traded a couple of months ago, where you printed your last high watermark for the fund, where you bought the thing. Like all this stuff is totally irrelevant. And these these traders who are so brilliantly agnostic about what has happened and what will happen can avoid all of that by just kind of selling everything and starting over. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend that for everyone either, but I think intellectually you have to try to train yourself to get into that frame of mind and just say, look, I've got to start from absolute scratch here and pretend like I've never heard of this company and I don't own it. And what would I do today? What would I say the future is most likely to hold? What would I pay for it? What's most likely to happen? And that's what seems to be totally missing from almost everything I read and almost everyone I talk to. Instead, it's like a very thinly veiled attempt to justify their prior conclusions and their their prior actions and their prior buy and sell decisions. And that is not productive, almost always. Yeah, I would agree, Phil. I, I think dealing with your own emotions when you have a stock down 10 plus percent in a day, that's probably the most challenging part here. Um, and you know, ironically, I feel like the trader who just sells everything doesn't have his or her emotions in check because you know you don't need to sell everything 
if you can look at things rationally, um, even though you still own them, uh, I guess by selling everything, you're kind of forcing uh, yourself in that direction. But you know, a Charlie Munger wouldn't need to sell everything to to stay rational, I guess. Um, in terms of the investment decision itself, you know, do you sell? Do you buy more? What do you do? I feel like it's really n- no different than the investment decision at any other point in time. I mean, you have another data point. It could be a very significant data point, um, but you know, you want to stay long term oriented and and hopefully when you have something in your portfolio you have a very clear long-term thesis in mind and the question is really how does this news affect that long-term thesis you know the market the short-term traders they may find it horrible but you know you might be able to say well it doesn't really affect it uh very much or not not meaningfully so i'm going to view this as an opportunity um, yeah, but the key is really to, to to try to stay rational and not get wrapped up uh, in the emotions. Yeah, I, and that's you know this gets back into a lot of the psychology of the behavior we've seen recently, which is that I remember when oil absolutely puked in what was that 2013, 2014, and the first round of distressed money that went into that decline, you know, when oil went from a hundred, you know, down by more than half over a period of time there, the first round of money that went into some of the oil companies that got distressed was incinerated very quickly. Like you, you almost never see that kind of money come in and get evaporated that quickly. And then the, you know, things eventually settled out and the next round of capital injection probably earned a pretty good return. And the same is, is often true. And I think it's happening again here where the buy the dip crowd has been just reflexively buying risk assets, you know, particularly equities, certainly crypto stuff, uh, on any sort of price decline, regardless of a reason. They don't have a reason. It's just, oh, the price went down. That must mean it's now a good time to buy it. And look, we all know about, you know, Buffett's famous analogy to buying groceries. You know, if you if you need groceries, if you like groceries and the price goes down, that's good news. And that's very much true. But as with everything in investing, there's a paradox. And if you're just buying something reflexively because the price went down and you're ignoring the future, that's getting it completely and totally wrong. And I've seen more and more people just try to present to me the most brain dead analysis of why company XYZ is some sort of bargain right now, because the price is down some crazy number, 70, 80%. And I look at them and I say, okay, well, this company wasn't doing well before and it's not doing any better now. And yes, the price may be lower, but that has nothing to do with what the value of the investment is. And they just kind of stare at me blindly like I'm speaking some sort of foreign language. And it's really bizarre to see. And I, I, you know, this this is an attempt to try to organize my own thoughts so I have a better response to those people next time, I guess. Yeah. I mean, anchoring is one of the known behavioral biases, right? That's definitely really hard. And I think to your point, there's something cathartic about being able to, I, I inherited a fantasy team from someone else and I called it tabula rasa, blank slate, because I was starting from scratch, right? First principles, it was a keeper league, okay? So we've talked about how fantasy baseball is a good uh, like way to learn about investing without having the For same sure. kind of exposure, whatever. Um, and, I, and I think there's something cathartic about saying like, I'm approaching this from first principles and I don't care about anything. And incidentally enough, uh, you know, one of the really successful, well-known tech hedge funds, KOTU, 
they effectively cleaned their slate in April. My understanding is they went to like 14 net and 19 gross. They kicked out almost their entire book. They'd been as close to 200 net uh, as recently, you know, as mid 2021. And so that's like remarkable just saying, hey, let's get out of everything and let's approach this from the ground up with a massive amount of cash. But I, you know, I, I, I could see the rationale in doing something like that. And I see the rationale in saying to your portfolio, hey, especially, you know, I like the quote, you don't have to make it back the same way you lost it when you're in a drawdown. Like you should think in terms of like, what are the best things to own today? Um, right. But there are like some consequences for kicking everything out. And I do know some people who in 08, 09 went all cash and were like, yes, I've avoided all this pain. The problem was the worse things got, the more they were like, I'm so smart for having gone to all cash and had no framework for getting back in. And it's like, then the market suddenly bounces 30% off lows. And you're like, I, I saw the rationale. I can't buy this so high off lows. I'm going to buy the next pullback. And then, you know, several years pass and you're like, well, I'm not invested at all. What do I do? <laughs> So I think, you know, if you're going to do something like that, you need a very clear framework for what gets you back in. Um, and that's so much easier said than done. Um, and then one of the other things I think about related to all this is a friend sent me a note just this morning about, you know, it talked about a seismic shift in assets and resources toward data-driven systematic strategies. And it referenced two specific data points that I found kind of interesting Jobs advertised for data scientists and quantitative analysis in financial listings uh, outnumber those for fundamental analysts by a factor of eight. And the number of fundamental analysts covering 1 billion of market cap shrunk from 14, 14 analysts per $1 billion of market cap to less than two today. And even within fundamentals, I know a lot more people who are like, I just, you know, look at data, trade, you know, I invest based on the direction of data and I don't want to stick to a story after the data's cracked. And I do think that has changed the market environment and things are a little more, um, uh, what, what would I call it? They, they like snowball in each direction a little more than they otherwise would, which creates weird dynamics and opportunities and risks, uh, depending on all kinds of questions about where you're situated. But you know, um, that makes it harder to clean the slate too. You're like, at what point do I get back involved? And like you said, with the energy people, you get run over right away. And it's like, did you make a mistake? Were you early? What's going to happen? You know, there are all kinds of questions. I've always said price tries to tempt you into action. And, and that's just one other temptation that gets added to the lot. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. So it, it leaves me with uh, one potential framework and one big question that, that you just brought up. The The one framework that I like to refer to, which is, you know, kind of the North star overall is, you know, would I own the whole business? Would I be happy with owning the whole business? You know, take the price out of it for right now, given the business and what's going on with the people, the products, the pricing power right now in an inflationary environment, the balance sheet, the cash flows, the returns on investment, all the stuff that you should care about if you own an entire business, would you be happy, temporarily dissatisfied, terrified, you know, where, where would you fall on that spectrum as an owner of the whole business and then start comparing, okay, well, the price is gone to here. What does that imply about the likelihood of my future returns as the business owner? Because, you know, starting, I think, with the business and then working backwards to, all right, well, now we can start to address what's happened with the price can really help me 
take, you know, the market emotion out of it without having to actually, you know, hit sell on anything, which I, which I'm more than happy to do when there's a mistake, but if it's purely just a price decline, I, I don't, but that's what I think people are also fooling themselves on. And then you mentioned energy, which I brought up earlier at the beginning too. So I'm curious what you guys think about this right now. A, a somewhat related topic is this concept of sector rotation, which I've had a couple of interesting conversations about recently, and it's not something I do, but I think it's an interesting thing to consider, which is that, you know, if you have some investment that's 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 dependent on a secular theme or or even a cyclical theme for that matter. So let's take energy for an example. Let's say that you uh, very shrewdly bet a year or two ago that we were still going to need fossil fuels and you were good owning any of those in the wherever in the in the industry in the ecosystem and, and you made a big bet on energy and now it's paid off in spades. What do you do? When do you, you know, if that was your bet then What's your bet now? And how do you know when it's time to rotate out of that into something else? And as you can probably guess by the nature of my question, this is why I find it so hard to do because you know, it may be one thing to get in at a certain price, but then how do you know when to get out? And, and by definition, you have to keep doing this over and over as opposed to just owning you know, a series of good businesses that you can own for a longer period of time. It's just much more difficult. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, for me, it's valuation. You know, um, I don't try to time sectors or anything, but I look at, you know, am I still excited about um, how cheap this stock is that I own? And uh, so when it runs up 5x, um, you know, the excitement might fade. I mean, yeah, you, you, you revise kind of your numbers and stuff, but um, as long as you don't fall in love with those uh, things, I think you just look at the valuation and you start seeing, you know, better opportunities elsewhere. Um, and, you know, they're going to tend to be in a sector that's been out of favor that maybe is going to have its day in the sun. But I feel like a lot of people try to kind of, you know, time the sector rotations like a beauty contest where they're trying to guess, you know, what's going to be the next sector that investors are going to like. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think paradoxically, the way to succeed in that is to not view it as a beauty context, but basically just view it as, you know, what's the best alternative right now in terms of my risk reward. And um, I feel like, you know, just a, a historical example, you know, when did Buffett go to cash during his partnership days or something like that? And people always say, wow, you know, he's such a great market timer. Well, no, he just didn't see compelling opportunities anymore. And it ends up looking like market timing, but that's not what you're, what you set out to do. Right. Yeah. I kind of like to, to emphasize the point, anything that makes investing more complex than it should be, is going to lead you down some dangerous paths at points. Like one of the lines I like slinging out is a bad decision begets bad decisions, right? So if you put the pressure on yourself to have to time sectors right, in addition to finding good companies within sectors, oh my God, is that so much harder than just saying like, my goal is to find good companies. And there's a reason why, like in terms of specialists, there are specialists within sectors. There are no specialists of sector rotation. Like, I mean, you know, you could have an edge as a specialist in a sector. You could also have some problems between the inside and the outside view. But like to be a sector rotation specialist, even as the market moves to these 
systematic strategies that are flows driven, it's really, really hard. And valuation and quality and, you know, true business analysis, like Phil, basically what you're saying is like, you know, it's a private equity approach to public markets. Would I own this at this price today? Um, knowing everything I know about the actual business, would I take the whole thing and be content to just like not have any liquidity and sit there owning it? Um, you know, that's a lot. It's not easy, but it's simpler. There are like fewer things that could go uh, wrong along the way and lead you to bad decisions Follow that 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 are a direct consequence of bad decisions. Um, and yeah, you know, like, I do think one of my bigger lessons over the last couple of years is don't let your book concentrate itself in just like a few small spaces because there is so much of the market that's driven by flows. And, you know, if even if you ever think your stuff's going to be more okay than other stuff, it just doesn't matter because of how much flows do matter. Um, so I think it's worth at least paying attention to um, the magnitude and direction of flows in spaces that you end up involved in. Yeah, no, I agree. It does seem to make things harder. Um, it, it's not to say that it's impossible. I'm sure there are plenty of people that can do it well. I'm probably not one of them. And and to your point, it also just begs the question of how big is too big, how expensive is too expensive. You know, these are questions we all struggle with, regardless of the investment. It's true of every investment, but it just sort of seems exacerbated in this environment where, you know. I, I don't have a way of quantifying this, but I imagine you guys would agree the last 24 months or the last 26 or 27 months now, I guess, has been some of the more extreme intellectual whiplash I can remember. And I would I would posit it's been some of the more extreme intellectual whiplash in anyone's career or lifetime. Like it's just been really hard to stay grounded and reasonable, if not perfectly rational in the face of everything that's been going on. But that's the that's the job, right? That's what we're here to try to do. So I wish I could go back and tell myself, like, never say something could digest uh, what in the near term is too lofty evaluation by going sideways. Because what sideways could look like when you zoom way out on a chart is very different yeah. than what sideways could feel like six months later. Right. Yeah. And that's another thing that I, you know, I've learned from experiencing it that I think a lot of people are experiencing for the first time. And, you know, this is not just the the Wall Street Journal man on the street kind of interview where they interview some poor doctor or, you know, some real estate agent or whatever that just learned the hard way that a stable coin is not stable or just learned the hard way that all SPACs don't make you a fortune or just learned the hard way that valuation doesn't matter or whatever. But I think there are a lot of people who are still sitting on unrealized losses that are not facing reality. And if I had, you know, one magic wand to wave or whatever, it would be to just make it clear that, you know, just because something has gone down a lot doesn't mean it can't go down a lot further. And so there shouldn't be this false sense of security that just because you've had a man overboard that, you know, it can't get worse. It can definitely get worse. Yeah, I think there was that Einhorn in his letter. He said, I, I might say it backwards or whatever, but like, what do you call a stock that's down 90%? And his punchline is it's a stock that was down 80% and got cut in half. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's some like, version of that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's definitely yeah, true. It's a frightening thought too. But, um, you know. Yeah, it is. And that's the thing is, I don't, 
again, I hate to harp on the same things, but I'm I'm just amazed at the number of companies that were either faddish or completely unreasonably valued or had unsustainable balance sheets where that situation's gotten worse, not better in the last six months, but people seem to want to just continue to deny that reality. And it's like, well, you know, th- this is where we are right now. You just have to deal with it. Denying it's not going to help you, even though it's a very natural reaction. Well, it seems to me like maybe the worst combination possible when you don't care about valuation, but you care about the price you paid. So you're anchoring, but you have no idea right. of, of actual intrinsic value. And, you know, that's where a lot of people are at today because they were buying high flying companies at more than 50 times forward sales uh, occasionally. And, um, you know, basically did not care one bit about the valuation while these things were going up, but yet they're anchored to some price. And now when it's off, you know, 60-70%, they feel like it's cheap, but it's not cheap at all. Um, So that's kind of a really bad place to be because, you know, maybe you would want to take that loss, but if you're that anchored, it's going to be hard to do. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think you put it perfectly because being anchored on, I have a three to five year view of the business, which is generally what I try to do, if not a little longer, is one thing. And that can be helpful to steer you through turbulent times and, and, and rough drawdowns, it can also be really, really harmful if you're anchoring to that and the world has changed around you and you just didn't realize it or didn't care to acknowledge it. But yeah, when you're anchored to something like price with no regard to valuation, and this is something I hammer in at my MBA class all the time, is you've got to remember the difference between pricing and valuation. And people start slapping multiples on things and doing a comp analysis, just you know, comparing it to some other peer company that they think is relevant you're pricing something, you're not valuing it. Or when you're just looking at the actual price itself, it has nothing to do with it. And yet here we are, people get really hung up on that. Yeah. And and there are some companies out there that are super sensitive um, in terms of their valuation to some, you know, data point or feature of the business model. And if that's no longer, you know, seems as favorable company could literally be worthless overnight you know yeah. um yeah. i mean there are examples i probably don't want to name names right now but you know some companies have been basically having um break even adjusted ebitda okay yeah and right. as long as they can convince investors and as long as it looks like their unit economics are good and with scale they're going to kind of ride that curve and eventually be super profitable, those companies can be very highly valued. But if there's if something comes out that kind of changes the view or the reality of those unit economics and you're at break-even EBITDA, I mean, you got no, you know, no downside protection yeah, at all. Exactly. It's it's really tough. And yeah, you just have to face reality as it is, even when it's painful, or especially when it's painful. Absolutely. Just maybe just one other thought on this uh, notion of sector rotation. 
um, you know, Elliot, you said it well, like don't complicate things, you know, investing is complicated enough. So it's best to try to keep it as simple as possible, no simpler, but as simple as possible. And I always go back to kind of, you know, you're not investing in a sector. First of all, you're investing in a company. And what does that mean? Well, it's actually, you you know, legally speaking, you're acquiring a small uh, equity stake in that company. And you're going to kind of make the fewest mistakes, I feel like, if you stay very close to that legal definition of what you're actually doing as an investor. You know, once you start drifting away from that and you start looking at sentiment and charts and flows and sector rotations and whatnot, you are removing yourself from what you're actually doing as an investor. And so, you know, it's much much easier to mess up when you're doing that, you know, because, yeah, what do you rely on if you're wrong? There's not much. I I would say for whatever reason, there seems to be an enormous amount of people who are not only willing to pull the trigger in a speculative way on a company for whatever reason, but with the rise of ETFs, I, I can, there's so many examples that in my personal life, which are granted just anecdotal of people though, that are that are playing the same sort of game where they're not investing in just one company, they're buying the sector ETF. And, you know, whether that's oil or software as a service or whatever, right. They think they can time that up and, and buy the dip, so to speak. And yeah, I'm with you that that takes a hard problem and makes it even harder in a lot of ways, unless you truly have a simple and valid thesis that pertains to the entire industry and you're trying to spread it out across a basket, which I don't think is most people's aim. Uh, it can make a hard problem even worse. And can I add to that, John? Because I think that's such a powerful point. As far as sectors concerned, like you should analyze the sector in terms of how the company is positioned. <laughs> so, you know, sector does matter, but fundamentally, right? How's your company positioned competitively? Uh, what's the um, industry structure like? Um, and take it from there. So there's something that's very relevant, but you know, timing moving sectors, my God, that's, that's hard. I know a couple of people that do it. Okay. Do it pretty well, but too hard. Um, yep. and you know, I think one of the points that I, for myself have revisited a lot this year is I've always, um, professed to be semi-concentrated, not concentrated outright. Uh, because it leaves you room to be wrong in areas and still be largely okay. Um, and I think all of this is an act of um, arrogance that needs to be paired with humility. And um, sector rotation is harder to to do through that lens, I think. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's a great point, Elliot. And, you know, I mean, one example is going back to the first dot-com bubble, right? Um, The e-commerce sector, of course, was going to do great, was going to grow. But basically, if you had invested in any company other than Amazon, you would have really messed up huge. So you got to look at the sector, but evaluate, you know, who are the players that are actually going to outcompete the the rest. Mm. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much, guys, for another great discussion. I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Talk to you um, next week. Actually, I think we have a uh, special guest next week.
We sure do. Very special guest. And we'll uh, miss you next week, John, running uh, the Zurich convention. But that sounds like it's going to be a blast. And uh, Phil and I will be here with with the guests. So come, come looking for something interesting. Terrific. Thanks so much, guys. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.